When I was a relatively young Christian, although I thought I was very spiritual, I was eating dinner with some friends at a Christian organization, a meeting place, and someone had asked me a question that day that I thought was an interesting question. They said, Skip, is God so big and powerful that He could create a rock so big that even He couldn't lift? And I thought, wow, that's a profound question. It was really a stupid question. But I thought, wow, now that now that takes some philosophical insight. And so around this table, I asked the leader of this organization, I have a question for you. And I asked him this question, is God so powerful he could make a rock so big that he even he couldn't lift? And he looked at me and smiled and he said, the Bible says to avoid foolish and unlearned questions. Now I thought, hey, you don't rebuke spiritual people. You don't need to say something like that to me. You could say, I'll talk about it later. But in front of everybody, I was reproved. We tend to think that if a person follows the Lord and loves the Lord, that you never rebuke or reprove such a person. May I read, as we begin, a proverb of Solomon. Listen to what he says. Do not rebuke a mocker, or he will hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Now, this is the situation Job is finding himself in this morning, being rebuked by God, although a very spiritual man. I want to begin in chapter 31, beginning in verse 40. Just one little phrase. It says, at the end of that verse, the words of Job are ended. When I read that, I want to applaud. And I'll tell you why. Uh, Turn back to, uh, keep your hand there and turn back to chapter 3. Verse 1, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Now, between chapters 3 and 31 are all the words of Job and his three friends. And as I go through it and I come to chapter 31, the end of the verse says, and the words of Job are ended, I think, thank God. I'll tell you why. I like debates. They're fun. They're exciting. And as you enter into this whole conversation of Job with his friends, 29 chapters is a debate. They're going back and forth at each other's heels. However, when you get to about chapter 7, chapter 8, all the arguments are covered. Everything after chapter 8 up to this verse is repetitive. They're saying the same old things and Job has the same arguments. And they have the same response and Job has the same response. And it goes back and forth for 29 chapters. And that kind of repetition gets old, doesn't it? That kind of repetition gets old, doesn't it? That kind of repetition gets old, doesn't it? Well, that's what it's like. I start reading the book of Job. It's interesting. It sounds like Nightline at first. 
They're going back and forth, giving different views. And then it says, the words of Job are ended. And I think, oh, thank you, Lord. It's like when my wife brings home a worship tape that she loves. She goes, oh, listen to this worship tape. She turns it on and I hear the tape. It's beautiful, honey. But she plays it and plays it and plays it. And you start killing the thing after a while. It's beautiful already, but I, I memorized every note and word in the tape. Play something different. For 29 chapters, these three philosophers and Job have verbal ping pong. And each time it's their turn, the accusation gets hotter. And each time Job is more angry. And it builds up and it builds up. Now that's how arguments usually turn out, don't they? Someone says something, another person says something that's a little worse. And then the conversation builds. You reach a point where the person turns off their brain, turns on their mouth, and it's just repetitive from then on. No thinking. And now the words of Job are ended. I like Job. I like him, just what I read about him. And I'll tell you the truth, I like his three friends. I don't think they're all that bad. Because when they first approach Job, they shut up for seven days. They just listen to him. And that's probably the best thing to do to a suffering person. Because when someone is suffering, words are trite. Have you ever noticed that? When someone is really suffering, to go up to him and just say, Oh, it's okay. This doesn't cut it. And so they listened to him for seven days. And then Job opened his mouth. Started cursing the day of his birth. These three friends jumped in with boxing gloves and said, Well, let me tell you why you're sick. You're a sinner, you're a rat, and you're worthless. Good friends, huh? By the way, a lot of preaching is done like that today. I want to tell you the good news. Yeah, what's that? You're going to hell. What's the bad news? Now we get to chapter 31, and in chapter 32, Elihu speaks. It says, so the three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry with his three friends because they found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. Now Elihu had waited before speaking to Job because they saw that the three men had nothing more to say and his anger was aroused. I'm not going to get into Elihu's speech this morning. We'll save that for tonight. But for 29 chapters, this debate has gone on until finally Job has nothing more to say. And I go, Phew. and the three friends have nothing more to say. And I think, Phew. and although I like Job, and I know he was righteous, in fact, God bragged about him in the first chapter, I think he made a mistake. I think he should have just listened to the advice of his friends and then put a lid on it. I think Job, after his friend said, well, Job, you're a sinner, you're worthless, you're a rat, and if you repent and get right with God, you'll be fine. He should have just smiled and said, thanks for your advice, friend. And then said nothing more. He should have just capped it at that point. But he went on, and he went on, and he got more angry. And have you ever noticed that when people are angry, they often say things that they regret later on? Job said a list of things that God is going to bring to his remembrance. God's going to hammer him because he said certain things he now regrets. 
in his anger. There's a saying that says it is better to close your mouth and let people think you're a fool than to open it and remove all doubt. The scripture has lots to say about the tongue, about the mouth, about gossip, about sinning with our lips. Have you noticed how often the Bible talks about that? It says, be slow to speak, be quick to listen, be slow to anger. Jesus said, every careless or idle word that comes from a man's mouth, he will give account before God for those words. There's a lot in Scripture about them. The classic example of someone who needed tongue-taming was my friend Peter. I say my friend because I relate to Peter quite a bit. It was Peter who, when Jesus said, Who do men say that I am? And then he said, Who do you say that I am? Peter said, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Right on, Peter. That's paraphrased. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, my Father in heaven. Now Peter thought, I'm on a roll. In the very next paragraph, Jesus says, now I want to let you guys in on a little secret. I am going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be crucified. They're going to beat me, they're going to torture me, I'm going to die, but I'll rise again from the dead. He was letting them know his future plans. Peter decides to step in on this whole thing because the disciples are floored. So Peter walks forward and goes, don't worry, guys, I can handle this. Jesus, we're not going to let you go to Jerusalem. Far be it from you to do that. He was on a roll, right? He said one thing, right? Jesus turned to him and said, get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me. You're mindful only of the things of man, not the things of God. Or what about when... Peter and James and John went up to the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. And Jesus appeared with Moses and Elijah. And it says that the disciples were asleep and they woke up and Peter sees Jesus and Moses and Elijah standing there. And you know how it is when you just wake up, you don't know what to say. And Peter has a few comments to say and God has to interrupt him. I don't know if you've ever experienced being in the presence of somebody famous or important and you get tongue-tied. You want to say something good and it sounds really stupid? Well, Peter did it in front of Moses and Elijah. He sees Moses and Elijah standing with Jesus and Peter said, It is good that we are here. Let's build three tabernacles, Lord. One for you, one for Moses, for Elijah. And I can hear Moses saying, where'd you get this guy? And God interrupts him and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. In other words, Peter, be quiet. Turn with me to the book of James for a moment. Keep your finger here, but turn to James chapter 3. In speaking about the tongue, in verse 2, James says, We all stumble in many ways. 
If anyone is never at fault or does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, a mature man, able to keep his whole body in check. Look at verse 6. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It's a fire. And there are people who are living flamethrowers. And they don't even know it. And later on they regret it. They think they're saying something, oh, it's well-meaning, but they're actually destroying people's reputation or destroying churches. You know, the body of Christ is at more danger from termites inside than woodpeckers on the outside. That's how churches get destroyed. There was a pastor of a church who had a problem with a woman who gossiped. And she came to him, called him on the phone, said, Pastor, the Lord's convicted me about my speech, my tongue. I think it's wrong. Well, this pastor knew that this woman had said this kind of a thing time and time again, and she really wasn't sincere. And so he just said, fine, what do you intend to do about it? She goes, well, in a real spiritual tone, I'm giving my tongue to the Lord. I'm going to put it on the altar. And he said, honey, there's not an altar big enough. It can destroy Solomon said, he that has knowledge spares his words. He that has knowledge spares his words. Twenty-nine chapters of a debate, and it got worse and worse until they exhausted their resources. They had nothing more to say. Then Elihu steps in and goes, now I've got a few things to say. Angry young man. Spends a few chapters giving a piece of his mind. A piece he couldn't afford to lose. And I'm not interested in what Elihu said this morning. I want you to turn over now to chapter 38 in Job. Now it's taken 37 chapters for this to happen and we read in verse 1, Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions. Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? My question is, God, why has it taken you so long to speak to Job? Why couldn't it just right over in chapter 4, you just said, Job, I'm going to tell you a few things. Why did we have to put up with 37 chapters of a debate that simply shows us how men think when they're going through evil and suffering? Notice it says, then... The Lord spoke. That's a clue. Then the Lord spoke. When? Then. What is then? After everybody else was finished. 
Job, Elihu. Eliphaz, Job. Bildad, Job. Zophar, Job. On and on and on. Elihu, everybody stops. Then the Lord spoke or answered Job out of the storm. I believe, folks, that the Lord would have spoken a lot sooner had all of these men quit talking a lot sooner. I believe that. Because each time it was their turn at bat, they said, this is how they prefaced each of their speeches. They said, no, uh, I have a few things that are very important to say, and if you just be quiet long enough and hear me out, this is real important. And each of them said that at the beginning of their speeches. In fact, they were accusing each other of being just a bunch of windbags. Job would say, oh, you're a bunch of windbags. Let me tell you something. And as soon as he'd get finished, Zophar would say, Job, you're a bag of wind. Now listen to me. And this went on and on. Then the Lord spoke. I think he would have spoken a lot quicker if they would have buttoned it up a lot quicker. Look back at verse 23 in chapter 37. This is Elihu's counsel. The Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power and justice and great righteousness does he oppress. Job, you've been calling out for God to answer you. God is too far away. God's not going to break in on you and answer you. Then the Lord answered Job. Out of the whirlwind or out of the storm. I am convinced, folks, that God wants to get through to us a lot. That he's trying to speak to us. But every time he calls, there's a busy signal. You know, we're always saying, God, speak. God's saying, get off the phone. Think about it. Our society is so designed that we have constant stimuli. In fact, some of us, because we cram our lives so full of activity, we become dependent upon that activity and that stimuli. You come home and it's quiet. You can't stand it. You've got to have a TV on or a stereo on. You've got to have noise. You get in the car. got to turn on the stereo. got to have something going in my ear gate and my eye gate. Constant stimulation. So every time God tries to get through to us, we're busy. He'd speak a lot quicker if we would get alone Shut off all the stimulation and say, God, speak to me. Here I am, Lord. I'm shutting everything else out. I just want to hear your voice. It says that the Lord answered Job out of the storm. The word storm means a wind tempest. A violent kind of storm activity. That's how God answered Job. What a, an interesting way for God to speak. Why couldn't God have just, in a quiet, still, gentle way, said, Job? You know, we talk a lot about a still, small voice, don't we? Using what it says in 1 Kings chapter 19, God speaks not in the whirlwind, not in the tempest, but in a still, small voice. In fact, I want you again to turn back to 1 Kings 19. Keep your finger here. 1 Kings chapter 19. Let's see how God speaks to a guy named Elijah. In verse 11, the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Elijah goes, Great. 
God's coming by my house today. I wonder how God's going to speak to me. Now listen. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. Or a still, small voice. A gentle, whispering voice. Psst, Elijah. Is that you, Lord? See, Elijah was expecting something dramatic. Those things that you would normally ascribe to God in His power, like an earthquake, like a wind, like fire. Yeah, that's God speaking. This dramatic representation of God. But he didn't. Just a quiet, hey, Elijah, it's the Lord. He spoke to Elijah, not in the dramatic, but in the simple. Not in the loud, but quiet. When we get to Job, it's just the opposite. God speaks to Job out of the storm, out of a whirlwind, out of a tempest. God speaks, if you get to the New Testament, to the disciples in the storm. As the boat was shaken and they thought that the boat was going to drown because of the waves and Jesus was asleep in the boat and they wake Jesus up. Wake up, we're going to drown. Jesus calms the sea and it says that they were amazed at his power that he could speak the word and would calm the sea. God spoke to the disciples of the power of Jesus through the storm. Here's the question. What's the difference? What's the difference between God speaking in a quiet, still voice and God speaking through a storm? I guess it depends on what he has to say and how willing and able we are to listen. Let me tell you something about listening. There are some people who are good at listening to the Lord's voice. They're sensitive to the Holy Spirit. They see the hand of God moving in their daily life. And it's very easy for that type of person to sensitively follow the direction of God. They can listen well. Then there's other people like me. God speaks and I go, huh? There are some people by their very nature who are stronger willed who require more dramatic, forceful kind of shake-up and manifestation for God to get His Word across. That is seen so aptly in the book of Acts on several different occasions. They come to my mind, but we don't have time this morning to delve into them. It depends on how good of a listener you are. If you're quick and sensitive to hear His voice, or if it takes a little bit of shaking up to get a hold of you. If it takes the calm and quiet voice... Or if it takes the storm. That's the difference. Is how well do you listen? God is getting Job's attention. He's shaking him up. I heard a story of a a mule who was stubborn. I laughed when I heard it because I thought of myself. And this mule was so stubborn that the farmer who owned the mule couldn't get the mule to do anything. He'd pull on it and the mule just sit there in the road going... (laughs) Come on, you dummy, get over here. And he'd yank him and he wouldn't move, wouldn't budge. His friend, who was also a farmer, looked at the guy who was struggling and he said, look, let me have this mule for just a day and I'll break him. I said, fine. His friend took the mule and he took a two by four 
And when he told the mule to do something, he wouldn't do it. He started hitting the mule with a two-by-four across the head. If you know anything about mules, it just you know, it's not going to break their neck or anything, but the farmer who owned the mule saw his friend beating this donkey. He said, what are you doing to my donkey, man? I want you to break him and help him be obedient. I want you to kill him. He says, I'm not killing him. I'm just getting his attention. Now, that's what God does a lot of times. Gets our attention. I'm not going to kill you, but it depends how well you listen. See, we tend to think that if we are receiving dramatic dreams and visions from God, that we're more spiritual. Not necessarily. You might be more stubborn, more thick-headed. And God, by His Holy Spirit, can't just gently lead you to your heart. You need something really dramatic, like a storm, to get your attention. Now, God gets Job's attention by asking him in two chapters 57 questions. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? You know, don't you? You tell me this. And he hammers him. Like the word says, the word of God is like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. It's an avalanche of questions. And I want you to turn now to chapter 40. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Now, listen to Job's answer now. You who are with us on Sunday nights, remember how Job replied and talked about God. God, I want to speak to you. I want to lay my case before you. Now, God says, Who are you to contend against God? Here's Job's reply, verse 4. I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once. I have no answer twice. I'll say no more. That's it. That's all he says. In other words, I don't have anything to say, God. Hey, Job, this is a little bit different than a few chapters before. What's happened? Have you ever had the experience of speaking about someone? You're talking about them and you have no idea that they're standing in the same room listening to the whole thing. I remember in high school, it was in a PE class. And I thought this guy wasn't there. And I said, ah, oh, man, you know, this guy's a wimp. And he was standing listening to me. And I went through this whole speech. And then he walks up to me and he goes, Heitzig, what'd you say about me? <laughs> How you doing, Ron? <laughs> you know, I was just joking all those things I was saying. I kind of get the impression Job feels like he's in one of those situations. He's calling out. He's saying, God is this and that. Who are you to contend with God? Oh, God, I don't really have anything to say. Go ahead. Let me tell you what God is after. God is dealing with attitudes with Job. Job is a spiritual man. God brags about him in chapter 1. Look at Job. He turns from evil and he fears the Lord. But that's on the surface. That's how he is. He, in his activity, follows God and he turns away from evil. Have you ever seen an orange or a piece of fruit that on the outside looks great and you peel it open and it's rotten inside? But you can't tell till you peel it open. The peel of Job, the peeling, he's, he shuns evil. 
he fears God or he reverences God. But you get underneath the peeling. And Job, his attitudes are a little bit different and God does deal with his attitudes in all of the book of Job. In fact, Job said, and when I am tested, I will come forth as gold. God was testing this man's attitude. I have a feeling that a lot of us this morning in this room, self-included, are a lot like Job. For the most part, we love God. We respect God. And we refrain from doing certain things that we know are wrong or worldly. Oh, I'd never do that. That is wrong. That's worldly. I'd never touch that. But that's the peeling. Peel that off and get inside the heart. And oftentimes there are attitudes that are sitting there. A whole different world. An unseen world called attitudes. Attitudes are like germs. You can't see them, but they're there. Now, here's a problem. Because attitudes lie below the surface of our life. In other words, right now, you may be sitting there thinking, I don't like Skip or his tie. I think it's a geeky way to dress. Now, if you did think that, I couldn't tell you were thinking that because you could be sitting there going... And afterwards, you might even come up and hug me. Don't you dare say anything about my tie, by the way. But now that's an attitude that I can't see because the peeling conceals it. But you peel that surface away and get to the attitudes. But see, here's the problem. Because the attitudes lay below the surface. A lot of times we ourselves are not aware of our own attitudes until we're tested. Until we're in a pinch. And something surfaces and we think, I didn't know I, I was like that. Let me give you an example. When I was a single person, I was told that I was a nice, easygoing, spiritual person. And I believed it. People would even come into my home and for a bachelor they thought, you are really neat, you're really clean, you keep things looking nice. When I got married, and I lived with someone who is an angel, But because of this difference of personality, we began to clash. All sorts of attitudes came out in me. Because now I was interacting with someone on a more intimate level. was being challenged in my attitudes. I noticed after I was married, man, I have a rotten attitude. There's a lot of things inside me I didn't know were there. I mean, she'll say something to me. She'll say, pick up those socks and I'll get so angry at her. Why? A lot of things I didn't know were down there surfaced later on. And when we get into a test, and this is one of the reasons God tests us, is so that those attitudes will surface, like we said last week, and God can skim them off so we can become like gold to tear off the dross. Job is pinched in the corner, and the attitudes are surfacing, and God is definitely dealing with them. Now let's look at a couple attitudes. Verse 8. Well, verse verse 6, the Lord spoke to Job again out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you. You answer me. Now, he's kind of tough with Job. Job, I'm going to ask you a few questions now. Brace yourself. Get up like a man. Would you discredit my justice? That's the first question. That's his first attitude. Job, would you discredit or nullify my justice? You see, Job was saying all of this time, God isn't fair. 
Now, outwardly, he was fearing God. He was respecting him. He was turning away from what was worldly and evil. He was even praying for his family. But as he was going through this, he was saying, God, you're not fair. I don't deserve what I'm getting. I don't deserve this pain. I deserve what I had before I was suffering. When I was prosperous and happy and healthy. That's what I deserve because I was good. He was saying, I should be getting what I've earned. And you're not fair, God. That's the attitude. Saying God is not fair because of our lot in life. You know, we prefer life when it's logical and fair, right? In other words, if a person does something good, they should be rewarded. If somebody does something evil, there should be consequences. But I notice we're comfortable with only half of that equation. Here's an example. You drive home this morning after church. And let's say you go over the speed limit. In town, the speed limit is 55, not 65. That's just out of town that it's 65. But you think, hey, it's 65 out everywhere else. I'm going to go 65. And you don't get a ticket. You deserve a ticket, but nobody saw you, so you don't get a ticket. Do you lose sleep over the fact that justice has not been correctly meted out? Honey, I can't believe it. I went 65. I didn't get a ticket. I feel so rotten. I'm going to call and turn myself in. Now, that didn't bother you, even though you didn't get what was just and fair, you deserve a ticket. However, if you don't do anything wrong and you get a ticket, you will squall, become so angry, have a long speech about how unjust the police department is. And yet, if you don't get a ticket, it doesn't bother you. Job felt that he was getting a raw deal. He said, God, you are not fair In my life. Turn back a couple chapters to chapter 19. Verse 6. Look what he says. Then know that God has wronged me. And drawn his net around me. Though I cry, I've been wronged. I get no response. Though I call for help. There is no justice. God says, Job, are you discrediting my justice? Are you saying I'm not fair? You got something to complain about? When you and I complain, we are voicing the fact that our what we're getting in life is not fair. That's what we're complaining about. It's like when you go to a restaurant. If you get poor food, poor service, you complain about it. You're telling the waitress and the management, it's not fair. I'm paying for a good meal and I'm not getting one. It's not right. But we have to face a fundamental truth. God knows what he's doing. And when we complain about our lot in life, we're saying, God, you're not fair because you are sovereign and you're in control and you should be doing something better than this. Job, would you discredit my justice? Would you say that I am not fair? And here's the problem. We are finite. We're limited. God is infinite. He is never limited. We have limited information And it's impossible for us to enter into the reasoning process of God and figure out why he does what he does when he does it. In it, we try to. And if it doesn't match our logic and fairness, we think God isn't fair. I deserve better than this. God is peeling away the peel on the orange. That was his first attitude. Then he says in the second part of verse 8, Would you condemn me to justify yourself? 
Now, there's a difference between the first and the second phrase. In the first phrase, God is getting at Job's attitude of saying, God isn't fair. Not only did Job say, God isn't fair. Job, through all of his speeches, was saying, this is God's fault that I am the way I am. I am not responsible for how I'm turning out. This is God's fault. I'm suffering and it's God's fault. I have a catastrophe and it's God's fault. He's becoming bitter and angry now. We hate to blame ourselves for anything. Isn't that right? We are masters at scapegoats. If something's wrong, it's either that other person's fault, my wife's fault, my parents' fault for raising me this way, my kid's fault because he put me on edge, or it's God's fault. It's never our fault. We don't like blame. He's blaming God. Now, he's not blaspheming God. He's not shaking his fist at God, but it's this subtle attitude of blaming God for what's going on around him. And those are rotten attitudes. And God is saying, would you nullify or discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourselves? Then he says this, and I love it. Do you have an arm like God? And can your voice thunder like his? Okay, Job, get up. Brace yourself like a man. Let's have a little power contest. Flex your muscles. Come on, go like this, Job. You have an arm like God? Let's have a shouting contest, Job. Is your voice as strong and robust as the Lord's? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at every proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and humble him. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Notice. Then... I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Job, can you create the world like I can create the world? If you can and you're that powerful, let's sit down and talk. We're on the same level. Let's argue about this thing. Let's see who's right. And I will admit to you that you're strong enough to depend upon yourself to save you. Now, he is dealing with the root attitude of Job in these verses. And that's pride. That is the root attitude that stems off all of those other attitudes of saying God isn't fair and it's God's fault. It's the attitude of pride. He stood before his three friends. He said, I'm righteous. I have integrity. There's nothing wrong with me. Nothing is my fault. God has done this to me. And all of you guys are not my friends. You're horrible. Now, in one way, I can sympathize with Job because he's suffering. But that went a little too far. He is exalting himself in his pride. And God wants Job to come to an end of himself. End of his own trusting in himself. That's what God wants for us. For us to come to an end of self-dependence. Now folks, I don't know where that end is for you. But I know how stubborn I am. And I know that God can handle me when I'm stubborn. And I know that if I seek to challenge God and get real tough and stubborn with God, God will go around with me. And two rounds and three rounds. God can handle that. He can get just as tough because he loves me. I want to close this morning with a text out of Romans chapter 9. Please turn to Romans chapter 9. Sums the whole thing up. In fact, I wish I could have quoted it to Job. 
verse 19, Romans 9. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? This is custom fit for Job and for some of us. If I don't like the way God is running things, then I should just move to the next universe. God, because he is a potter, desires to form our lives into the image of Jesus Christ. And he works one person this way and he works another person this way. Now, here's the tragic thing. There's a lot of Christians that are resisting that change. God applies pressure, begins to mold them through trials, and they go, what are you doing, God? I want identity, man. I want to be myself. I want to be me. And God says, I don't want you to be you. I want to make you like Jesus. You aren't good enough. And so he molds and he shapes and we resist his will. It's because people don't know the love of the potter. You see, we're dealing with the sovereignty of God, that God does what he wants to do when he pleases. And who are we as pottery to say, you can't make me this way? You know why people say that? Because they don't understand the mind and the heart and the love of the potter. All the while they're resisting his touch and God in his love is desiring to make something beautiful out of their lives. I don't know if you've ever watched a potter before. But as a potter is making something at the wheel and turning that vessel, at first it looks gray and crude, just a big lump of clay. But in the mind of the potter, he sees the end result. He knows what he wants it to look like. And the only way that you and I can find out what God has in mind for our lives is to submit to his touch when he works with us on the wheel. If we resist his will, if we fight it, some of us will never know what God had intended for us to become like in shaping us and molding us into his image. And so we fight him and God says, don't fight me, I love you. But I want to be me. I want you to be like Jesus. Why this trial? It's not fair. God is just. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider your work in our lives, deliver us from the sin of complaining. Help us not to sin with our lips. Lord, we want you to speak to us. Some of us, you can just whisper to us. Some of us, you need to bring a storm. But no matter which way you do it, Lord, we definitely need for you to intervene and speak and mold and shape. Deal with our attitudes, Lord. Take away the peel and get to the heart.